This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We can find instant satisfaction in almost anything these days. Sleepy? Instant coffee. Need to sell your car fast? Car sales? Instant offer. That's right. Sell your car the instant way and get it done with Australia's most trusted site for cars. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Today's guest is Graham Edwards. Graham is a Vietnam veteran. He's uh, served at all three levels of politics, council, state and federal, uh, as a former RSL president, and in 2016 was the Senior Australian of the Year. Graham Edwards, thank you for your time and welcome to this edition of Inspiring Stories. G'day, uh, Tim, how are you? I'm oh, just going to correct you, mate. It was the Senior West Australian of the Year. Oh, well, that, that can, we'll, we'll, we'll elevate you to Australian of the Year. No, sweet. Good <laughs> on you. AM as well, uh, just to add uh, a couple of extra uh, accolades uh, to your very long list there, there, Graham, but we'll get into that a little bit later because uh, uh, that in itself was, uh, was almost a, a political uh, exercise for you too, wasn't it? Oh, mate, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's not many things in these in this life that, that aren't connected to or political in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Unfortunately. Graham, born in Kalgoorlie. Yep. Uh, how, how, how much of your life did you spend in Kalgoorlie and what do you remember of it? Well, mate, I don't remember a, a heck of a lot because um, we moved out to a place called Mount Ida, which is out in the old Menzies um, Leonora track. Uh, Dad was a uh, a miner, um, a, a prospector. He'd worked there before the war and, and in the general area. Um, when mum and dad and, and after the war had finished, dad came home. Um, he'd been knocked around a fair bit. He went back to, uh, to mining in Kalgoorlie, but he then received the offer of uh, becoming an underground boss out at, I think it was a mine called a Timoni, out at Mount Ida. Sadly, Mount Ida now is... Uh, is just a, a ghost town. It's a remnant of mm. a once thriving uh, mining uh, area. Just like so much of the uh, the gold fields, it's um, it never recovered. I think um, the number of people um, you know following that first world war. So he was literally uh, one of those uh, those Australians sort of chasing the dream out there as, yes, a, as a prospector. Yep, yep, yep. He um, dad had been knocked around during World War Two and. And um, when I was still very young, about five or six, the family had to relocate back down to Perth because mm. Dad's uh, injuries sustained during World War Two were quite uh, crippling, and he just couldn't continue um, working underground. So he retrained as a bootmaker, and in the mid fifties, opened a bootmaker shop at the old Midway Shopping Centre. Uh, just over that first little hill from Scarborough, mm. and uh, did very, very well for quite a while. It was uh, a growing area, a lot of young families, and the business went well. 
eventually uh, Dad's uh, injuries caught up with him and he lost the business because he just spent so much time in hospital. And one of my mm. enduring memories is almost every weekend, uh, week after week, visiting Dad at Hollywood Hospital. Uh, when he eventually uh, did get out, he uh, he couldn't get a job. Uh, people wouldn't employ him because he wasn't. They they didn't uh, uh, rate him as being physically fit enough. Uh, the old repatriation commission wouldn't give him a pension because they reckon that he wasn't sick enough. So he packed up and he went back up to Kalgoorlie and he 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 returned to the only uh, thing he loved um, and knew, and that was uh, prospecting. And he walked out of there um, quite a few years later, uh, fairly rich. He'd discovered good nickel deposits. Uh, he he first went prospecting um, in a little Morris Minor Ute. He had a, a uh, he was on crutches. He had a, a pick strapped to one and a shovel strapped to the other, and away he went. And uh, you know, my man was an incredible male man was an incredibly gutsy bloke. Yeah, a hard father, a fair father, uh, incredibly hard and, and incredibly gutsy. Wow. What an incredible story. Yeah, he wrote his own book, um, which is uh, a fantastic book. And um, I know um, one of your predecessors here at 6PR w- was uh, given a book, um, uh, Graham Mabry, and he and Dad were, were very good mates. And um, Graham used to call him Blue, and he'd Blue would often ring up <laughs> and um, uh, have a good chat to Graham. Uh, just just on your dad's uh, participation in, uh, in in World War Two, where did he serve, and and what were the injuries that he sustained? Mate, he was in what was called the Second First uh, Independent Company, and um, they were mainly patrolling up off the north um, of Western Australia, up through Broome, the Kimberley, uh, up around that area, and serving also serving in some small boats uh, offshore. Dad never really spoke much about it, except to say he'd just been knocked around um, pretty badly, and that was very evident by yep. the the uh, um, you know by the the amount of time that he spent in hospital uh, as I was growing up. So I, I ask that because obviously um, you know so much of your story involves your time uh, in our armed forces. Um, how much uh, of a role did your dad play, being a such a, a figure in your life in your um, in your then participation in, in the Vietnam War, how did you come to uh, to join the army? Well, mate, um, let me say first of all, I determined when I came home from Vietnam that the Repatriation Commission, or it's now called the Department of Veterans Affairs, would never treat me the way they treated mm. my father, and I would fight every inch of the way. But um, just while I'm on that theme, coming home, I guess too, my injuries were very visible. Uh, they were easy to see and easy to recognise. And I think in many respects, um, I was much better off with many of the blokes who came home with the hidden wounds of war, mental stress disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, things that people couldn't see and because they couldn't see them, they didn't believe them, they didn't understand them, they didn't treat them, they didn't accept them. So as far as that went, I was much better off. But just going back to why I joined the Army, I I went to school at Christian Brothers, not all that far from here, just down there on the terrace. And um, we were flogged about the fears of communism and uh, all of these sorts of things. And, you know, when I grew up, I, I joined the CMF or the Army Reserve, as it's now called, um, in a place called Katani. And I loved it. 
And um, I believed then in the war in Vietnam. I, I was a supporter of the domino theory that had come out of America that was that if the free world allowed Vietnam to fall, then like a series series of dominoes, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore would eventually um, come under strong threat and perhaps fall, and that would see Australia placed under direct threat. I believe that, and I fell for that domino theory, and I fell for the lies that were told uh, in both the Australian Parliament and, of course, through the media and through the American uh, situation. And I uh, joined the army when I wasn't called up. I thought, oh, well, I'll go and join. It wasn't until after I'd signed up for three years that I realised I could have just volunteered for national service and done the two, which would have suited me. But anyway, I went off, I did my training, and I went up to Vietnam, and I was only there a very short period of time when it became very obvious to me that uh, we didn't have the hearts and minds of the locals, and if mm. we didn't have the hearts and minds of the locals, this was... Uh, this was a war we could never win. And it seemed to me too that the sooner people came to that realisation, um, the better off we'd all be and the less drama, the less death, the less, less suffering there would be right throughout the country. And I think the local people in the main uh, just wanted to to find peace in their own communities, mm. their own uh, little areas and and to get the hell out of the place. So you joined the, the the Vietnam War effort pretty early on in terms of Australia's participation. And, and how old were you when you I was, when you first left our shores? Yeah, I was twenty two when I went away, mate. No, I, I didn't join um, straight away. Um, I didn't join until sixty eight. And um, uh, one of the reasons that I didn't was Dad was going through a bit of a crook phase, and I remember working away. And um, I came back home and I had intended to join earlier, but I hung on and hung on. Eventually, I went in in 1968 and um, I think I joined up late 67 and went away in early 68, uh, did training, got stuck in Australia for two years. Um, When the 7th Battalion had just come home, we were posted there and it was a fair amount of time of rebuilding the battalion and we went away. Um, I went over in the advance party. Um, in uh, early um, 1970. I was only there a short period of time and we got um, mortared one night and I sustained some wounds to my back. So I spent a bit of time in hospital and I thought, well, that's really good because, you know, I've copped my little bit for the for the uh, tour and, and I'll be sweet for the rest of the time. Well, that wasn't to happen because uh, not long after that I um, were out in an operation and um, I uh, had an incident with a mine, a landmine, the interesting thing is that when I reflect, the mortar that hit us was one of our own, called in too close. The landmine that I trod on was one of our own. So I'd done all right with friendly fire. I didn't need enemies. Yeah. If that's not a sign, Graham, I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, I want to ask you more about uh, about those um, those experiences in, in Vietnam, but we already have to we have to uh, take a break, Graham. Um, so we'll get into that uh, straight after we uh, we hear these announcements. Graham Edwards is our special guest in this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon here on eight eighty two six PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on eight eighty two six PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. 
You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Graham Edwards, AM, is our special guest uh, in this edition. Graham, you were just uh, talking us through uh, your experiences in Vietnam just before uh, the break there. You mentioned uh, well, two incidents in particular, uh, a mortar uh, attack and then you stepping on a landmine. Uh, as we now know, you uh, you suffered uh, some pretty uh, life changing injuries. Then uh, you lost both of your legs. Um, how do you how do you possibly process that? I, I can only imagine how you process it. I, I I can't really begin to imagine though what it's like, mate. I guess in many respects, I'm still processing it. But right from the time, like when I trod on the landmine, I was conscious for the whole thing. Um, I just remember laying there waiting for the sound of that, that chopper to come in and pick me up and take me to hospital. And um, I must say that the sound of that chopper coming in the sweetest, is the sweetest sound I've ever heard in my life. Because of my previous experience when I'd ended up there and I knew just how good the medical facilities were and I knew how good the doctors were too. So I'd complete faith in them. But I knew straight away that my legs were um, were gone. And so when I woke up the next morning in hospital, it was merely a matter of looking down to see how high the amputations were and being disappointed that they were both above knee because they'd always try to, um, you know, to uh, they don't like to amputate above the knee if they can help it and they'll always try to uh, retain a knee. But in this case, it, it just wasn't possible. You know, my my first thoughts were, I'm just so lucky to be alive. Um, I'm so glad that I've survived, and all I wanted to do was just get home mm. and um, um, and and be reunited with my wife and and young daughter. So they were the things that went through my mind, um, just wanting to get home, wanting to get mm. home, and um, just being so lucky to be alive, but uncertain as to what would unfold and how I would go about pursuing life, but with the determination that I just wanted to come home and, and be a good father, good family man, and mm. to get on with life in whatever form it was presented. Once it had happened in Vietnam, were you, were you flown out of there immediately? Did you have any kind of surgery there and then more surgery uh, back here? What was the sort of time period? I look, mate, I was um, operated on straight away. As soon as I got in, my last memory was looking into the eyes of the doctor who was uh, going to operate on me, and I, I really felt sorry for the bloke. And um, and then, of course, the next thing I woke up um, in the morning and minus legs. I was only kept in Vietnam for about five or six days because they wanted to get me out. They told me they wanted to send me home. And I wanted to go home, and they wanted to get me out of uh, the One Field based hospital at at um, Vung Tau in Vietnam because they were more worried about uh, infection setting in there than than mm. if I was home. We were casavacked um, by a uh, Hercules helicopter that was a Hercules uh, airplane that was specifically um, set up with stretchers and and what have you. And when we got to Butterworth, which we uh, we went through in Malaysia, um, I was taken off the plane and and 
that caused me an immense amount of grief. And uh, I was very, very angry. And um, um, I said some things to the doctor then there about being pulled off that plane that, that I've that I've regretted ever since because he was a Pakistani uh, bloke but turned out to be a an absolutely fantastic doctor. And they took me off the plane and kept me in Butterworth for two weeks. And that mm. was for my own good. And when I reflect, you know, I was in a much better um, position mentally uh, to go home. Mm. This um, the, the doctor up there had... Um, operated on me to stretch skin over my stumps to save me having skin grafts when I got home. They didn't get it right the first couple of times, um, and that caused immense pain. But after a couple of days, they they did get it right, and the work that he did up there uh, was just fantastic, and it did save me mm. any further um, surgery when I got home. I was in hospital for um, about a month after I got home. I spent probably, I think, seven weeks in hospital from the time that I lost my legs and then I was discharged. My wife had been living with her family in Ballarat and um, we um, we um, at least a flat in Victoria and I was then treated as an outpatient at Heidelberg uh, Hospital, which was a fantastic hospital. Yeah. And the facilities there for uh, building uh, artificial legs prostheses uh, were so much superior to what they had at Hollywood as I was to find out later on when I got home about um, about uh, 12 months later, I, I decided I had to come back to Perth. Yeah, I knew Perth. I thought I had a better chance of creating a life for uh, the family, myself and the family, uh, in, a, in, in a city that I knew, and um, hopefully I could find work and, and get back on the payroll. Yeah. Uh, an incredibly stressful time. Again, I can only imagine this, not having any personal experience of it, but an incredibly stressful time. Uh, for your loved ones when you were away uh, serving overseas. Um, even more distressing, I suppose, when uh, when contact comes from uh, from Vietnam in your case. Uh, how was your, your, your wife and your daughter informed uh, of what had happened to you there? Well, pretty, um, you know, I, I, I always dreaded the thought that, you know, I might get killed in Vietnam and have some bloke would come to the door and, and knock on the wife's door and um, and just say, uh, look, sorry to tell you, but your, your husband's been killed. It, it wasn't like that, but it wasn't far away from it. Um, they fronted up with a couple of telegrams the first time I was wounded, and then it wasn't so bad because they said the, the wounds weren't uh, life-threatening, um, but I'd be in hospital for a week or so. The second time, they just handed Nolene a telegram and, and asked her to read it, and that's uh, basically you know, said that I'd been wounded, that I'd had the amputation of both my legs and was in a critical condition. Mm. So that was pretty hard on her. And I guess, too, um, um, you know, Nolene had been a nurse in the army, and that's where we met. And, um, uh, you know, she was pretty stoic then and still has um, been, and and, uh, right through to the current day. We'd been married nearly 50 years. Uh, and so she's been a great support to me through all of that time. So it's early 70s. You've spent 12 months or so recuperating uh, in Victoria. You've made the decision to come back to Perth. Uh, what then? Well, mate, I wanted to um, go and sit for my leaving. Um, but, you know, the system being what it was, I'd left school the year I turned 15. I hated school. You know, I, I, 
you know, all school did for me was just teach me to teach me the things that I was no good at. You know, I love cricket, I love footy, and I love getting down to Scarborough and just body surfing. I had no interest in school whatsoever. <laughs> and in those days, of course, when you left school, as a lot of um, us did around the age of fifteen, there were so many jobs. Yeah, you know, on the offering, it was not a problem. As opposed to today, where an education is just so incredibly important. So they wouldn't let me sit for my leaving until I went back and did my junior. And that was uh, pretty demoralising. I I had to go back to school with a number of uh, young adolescent girls because I was doing commercial course at Leadville Tech. I did uh, economics and English and, and accountancy and so on and so on. But it was just um, dreadful to sit through those years. And I was wearing artificial legs in those days and I remember... I had to climb stairs all over the place and the legs were held on by suction and they were heavy, cumbersome mm. and quite painful. And um, often I'd be halfway up the stairs and the suction on the legs would break and I'd be sort of stuck mid-stair, um, not being able to go up, not being able to go down and having to sit on my bum and then um, slide my way down the stairs, um, pull down my pants, get a sock out, put it on the stump, put it through the hole in the... Uh, the artificial leg and and pull my stump back in and, and recreate the the vacuum. But when the vacuum did break on the legs, it was just a loud, a loud fart-like sound that <laughs> that caused me immense embarrassment, particularly when you're sitting in a class with uh, these young adolescent girls doing uh, commercial work and, and this loud sound would sort of erupt across the classroom. No wonder the girls didn't want to sit anywhere near me. <laughs> but they had no understanding of what was going on. And, yeah. And... and um, they were painful years. They were really painful years. Eventually mm. I got through it and um, I thought I did reasonably well at the exams, not as well as I'd wanted, but reasonably well. And I went down to Hollywood Hospital to the unit that was supposed to be um, overseeing my education. Mind you, um, I had not seen hide in a hair of them. But this bloke um, said, oh, Edwards, he said, uh, yeah, he said, uh, we've been keeping an eye on you. You've done well. He said, I've got a job for you. And he said, I want you to come with me. And we jumped into his car and we took me up to a place in Carrington Street. And we walked up the stairs of this place and it turned out to be a shelter workshop. And it was for people with uh, intellectual disabilities. And he walked me around the, the factory floor as was. And, this, you know, these young kids who are doing all of these menial sorts of tasks that were afforded them. And we walked around and the bloke looked at me and he said, You've done all right, he said. Any of these jobs you want here is yours. And if ever I felt like punching a bloke, it was there and then. I, you know, I was just, I just deflated. I lost all of my enthusiasm. I became quite emotional. And I just, I just remember walking down those stairs. I can't even recall how I got home yeah. or what I said to my wife. But it was a, an absolute kick in the guts, I might say, to have put myself through rehabilitation, gone back to school, done the hard things, and then to be offered a job in a shelter workshop, it was it was crumbling. Fortunately, um, a mate of my father's was over from the east and they knew a bloke in the army who knew a bloke and knew a bloke, and I got a job working for the army as a civilian. And uh, the, the, one of the greatest thrills I'll ever, I, I can recall in my life was getting that first pay packet. In those days, we were yeah. paid in, in pay packets and it was a great feeling to go home 
and uh, throw the pay packet on the table and say, here, cop this. This is what I've done? Yep. Mm. Well, that was uh, the first of many, many pay packets to follow, uh, Graham, because you spend a, a long time in politics after that at all three levels. So I'm uh, really keen to hear your thoughts on those. We do have to take a break, though. Graham Edwards is our special guest in this edition of Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to this edition of Inspiring Stories. Uh, Graham Edwards is our special guest. Graham, just before we uh, talk about your time in politics, uh, keen to hear your thoughts on... Uh, your um, your time here in, in Australia post-Vietnam, uh, I mean, obviously there was a highly charged atmosphere. There were, It was a very polarising uh, time in our history. Um, Vietnam veterans, as we know, um, it took a, a long, long time uh, to get the recognition for what they uh, experienced. Um, your personal thoughts on, on, on your time in the 70s? Well, look, mate, we, yeah, we, we've learned a lot since those days. And, you know, um, I think the thing we did learn most as a nation was that even if you are opposed to the war that a government sends young men and women off to, you take your opposition off out against the government, not against the troops who, who went and served and who came home. Mm. And that sadly is what happened to so many Vietnam veterans. You know, we walked back home into the cold shoulder of ignorance, indifference and violence in some cases. In my own case, and my father never told me this for years, my mother had received hate mail from someone in the church where uh, she was a member. Um, While you were there or, or after you got back? While I was still home. Right. Mum had been a member of the church at Scarborough. She went to church. Um, the The local um, priest, a fellow by the name of Alf Holland, asked uh, people to say a few prayers for the son of uh, Mrs. Edwards, who'd been badly wounded and they weren't sure whether he'd live or die. Um, Mum and Dad were sitting at home a couple of days later. Dad told me this years after I came home. Um, and I can understand now why he didn't tell me immediately. But um, he said Mum was reading uh, this card and he, all of a sudden she let out a shriek and um, went white. And mm. <clears throat> um, Dad took the card off her and uh, it was a letter from the church. And someone had said, uh, I was in church Sunday morning and asked to pray for your son. Um, I think it would be better if he died, um, as obviously he's a killer. And and um, um, it just shocked my mm. parents. Mm. And how anyone could ever do that mm. to the mother of a, of a, of a soldier who was wounded uh, and, and not knowing whether their boy was going to live or die is just something that... I can't understand that a Christian person could do. I think that was a reflection of the depth of feeling yeah. that so many people had against the war that, that it would cause them to do something um, like that. Mm. Um, look, many of the battalions that came home did receive good, strong welcomes. Um, I think one of the worst situations was for the national servicemen who came home. Many of them came home in dribs and drabs, they landed in Sydney. Um, they were told to get out of uniform, get into civilians. They were sent home. And many of them, you know, just never had the comradeship of 
uh, a group who came home uh, in on the HMO Sydney. They they never had time to unwind to decompress. Yep. I'm aware of one bloke when I worked for the Vietnam Veterans Counseling Service. I remember a fellow who came in who'd actually been in a firefight um, uh, on about the Wednesday night in Vietnam. He was sent home within a day or two because his time was up. He was married the next weekend. I mean, it was as quick as that. Yep. Many veterans, um, they adopted the attitude that if you weren't there, you couldn't understand what's the sense of us trying to talk to you or explain things. Uh, and they put a lid on their emotions and those emotions bubbled away like a, like, um, a cauldron for, for a long time. And eventually, in many circumstances, um, the lid blew off. Yeah. And I think now we know a hell of a lot more about um, post-traumatic stress disorders mental health issues. As I said earlier, I think when I came home, I was so much better off in comparison because my injuries, my war wounds were visible. Yeah. So many of the wounds were not visible and because mm. they weren't visible, weren't understood, weren't accepted, weren't treated. Mm. Uh, but we know a lot more now. And I think mm. too, we tend to show a lot more support for our troops today mm. uh, as a result of people understanding just how badly Vietnam veterans were treated not just by the broader community, but of course by the RSL in many respects. Mm. Uh, they were denied uh, entry, uh, and and even today, a number of Vietnam veterans refuse to join the RSL or mm. to have anything to do with it. Yeah, it was a, a sad chapter that sadly is still playing out, isn't it? Oh yeah, it is. Mm. But hopefully, you know, I um, I joined the RSL when I came home. Uh, Dad took me down to the Scarborough branch of the. Uh, uh, RSL in 971, he said, do your son join up? No, if yeah. so, join up. And um, I did. And look, mate, I've had my blues with the RSL over the years, but it's um, it's a strong organisation that uh, I know in the eastern states has lost its way. But in WA, it's, it's pretty well purely a volunteer organisation. Some great blokes out there, yeah. some great women doing fantastic work to support um, uh, veterans of all eras, yep. and uh, I would encourage uh, any veteran of any age to mm. become a member of the RSL. It won't do them any harm. Of course, you became uh, the the state president, uh, which we'll get to uh, uh, shortly, Graham. But I want to uh, get you to touch on your time in politics because uh, it started what the early eighties. Uh, there's obviously something happening in the city of Stirling that enticed you uh, to uh, to join the ranks of uh, of, of councillor. At the city of Stirling, what was it? What was it that lured you in? Well, mate, uh, when I was um, doing my rehabilitation, I was doing commercial course like uh, typing and um, shorthand and these sorts of things. And I found I had a bit of time on my hand overnight. I wanted to get involved in the local community where we're living in Belcatta, and uh, I joined the Belcatta um, the Belcatta um, Ratepayers Association. Basically, it was uh, known in those days, and. I got involved. They were looking for a secretary. I stuck my hand up like a mug, and um, and I got more and more involved in things. We had strongly supported a local councillor. He was re-elected. He led us down in giving us support for things that we were after. At the next election, I stood. I didn't win. That was in about 1979. I stood again uh, shortly after and won, and, and I got involved in local government. And I might say that Local government was a form of government I really enjoyed because you're closest to the people, you're closest to the issues, and um, you're close to the community. 
look, I might say I was approached while I was a councillor to stand for a seat in the 1982-83 election uh, led by uh, the, uh, eventually uh, Premier Brian Burke. He approached me. He said, look, what about thinking about this seat? It's uh, in the upper house. It's going to be very difficult to win. You'll be looking at swings in excess of 17%, but have a go. You never know what's going to happen. So I went home, talked to Nolan about it, and I decided I'd blow it. I'll stick my hand up and have a crack. Yeah. And lo and behold, I think no one was more surprised than I was when <laughs> I won. And uh, you spent many successful years uh, as a member of, of state parliament. You you held uh, so many titles in there, a Minister for Sport and Rec, Consumer Affairs, Racing, Gaming, uh, Youth, Police, Emergency Services, uh, Aged Care, um, I think I've covered them all there. Um, that's, Thank you. that's quite a few different uh, areas of responsibility. Was there a particular uh, portfolio there that uh, that you remember most fondly? Oh, well, I suppose sport was the one that I really loved, uh, except for when it came to the time of setting up the football commission. That was <laughs> become very difficult. Well, can I just say we spoke to Tom Hode <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. For, uh, for one man, of these episodes uh, yeah, uh, just in yeah, the last couple yeah, of weeks, and yeah. he he mentioned you when. Mm. Um, you got your heads together and brought the World Swimming Championships oh, yeah, uh, to was, Perth in, in yeah, 1991, yeah. if my memory serves. Um, it was – well, we had we had them twice. Yes, uh, 91 Tom, and 98. Tom was a great uh, a great man. I've got an, an, an immense admiration for Tom Hode. Um, but, um, yeah, police, I enjoyed sport, and I met some fantastic people in, in, in all of the uh, portfolios I held. Uh, but sport, of course, and um, uh, working with the age, youth, uh, all of them meant something to me. Yeah, yeah. We have to take a break, uh, Graeme. After that, though, I want to ask you about uh, stepping up uh, into the federal arena because uh, it was 1998, uh, and that took you all the way through until uh, 2007. So some memories uh, from there, I'm sure. Uh, I hope you can join us after the break. Graeme Edwards is our special guest in this edition of Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. And our special guest in this edition is uh, Graham Edwards. Uh, Graham, we've just uh, finished up your time in uh, in state politics. The last uh, few of which were uh, spent in opposition after the defeat of the uh, the Carmen Lawrence uh, government in uh, in ninety three. You retired from state politics in ninety seven, but ninety eight comes around, and uh, you decide to to sit for a federal election. You're a glutton for punishment. Well, look, mate. After fourteen years in the uh, legislative council, I, I really had enough of politics and I thought it was time and I'm a great believer that you you don't hang around in politics you do what you want to do and you get out and after 14 years I decided it was time to go Um, and all I wanted to do was just get as far away from politics as I could (laughs) which I managed to do for about 12 months but look I you know I had some good friends in the community and among them a group of uh, Vietnamese people who'd come out as refugees and a couple of them came to see me one day and said, look, Graham, we don't know what's happening in our community. We don't know what's happening in the schools. What's happening to Australia? Our kids are getting bullied. They're getting taunted before they're, because they're Asian. And there's something wrong. Something's badly wrong. Who's this Pauline Hanson? And, look, you know, I started to take an interest again 
And I spoke to more and more people who lived up in the northern suburbs and they were concerned about where Australia was going. They were concerned at what was happening to their kids. And, mate, I hate racism. I abhor racism. Uh, racism. It's, it's just an appalling thing to see in any community. And I hated to see the way some of my friends, migrants, uh, refugees, were living. They were, they were working hard. They're trying to make a go of a new country. They had great aspirations for their kids and and they were facing these fears. So I determined I'd do something about it. I put my hand up for the federal seat of Cowan, uh, then held by a Liberal bloke. And um, I didn't know him. I had nothing against him, but I just thought I had to make a, a bit of a stand. And um, we won the seat and um, uh, I held it for nine years. Unfortunately, all of those years were in opposition. And once again, at the end of nine years, I just felt that I'd had enough. It was time yeah. to get out. Yep. and let someone else come in who was, uh, who could maintain the enthusiasm and, and maintain the, the work. And I might say that being a federal member uh, from Western Australia, is uh, it, it requires a big commitment uh, to the job. It's at the expense of your family and it's at your own mm. personal health uh, often. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so nine years uh, there in Canberra, so a lot of time in Canberra away from your family. Um, you, you're back in, in Perth and, and some years after you retired from federal politics, you became um, the president of, uh, of an organisation here in WA that also has its own politics going on uh, in the RSL. So you, 2012 to 2016, which must have been a, a, an extraordinary time to be uh, the president of an RSL anywhere around the country because we had so much going on around the, the centenary uh, of, uh, of, of the First World War and particularly uh, of, the, uh, of the Anzac missions to Gallipoli. It, look, mate, it was um, the RSL at that stage when I stood, there was in, I might say, there, was, there were problems around the place and a number of my mates said, look, Graham, what about sticking your hand up? You know, we've got to change things. And um, I put my hand up and I won. And it was a political organisation and still is of its own. Um, but it's a great organisation. And my first love in the RSL, not for the hierarchy, mm. it's for the members, the rank and file, the men and women in the sub-branches who make up the bulk of the RSL, who do all of the voluntary work, who do fantastic things. And in, in my view, it had to be reformed to better reflect them and better mm. support them. And as it turned out, it was an incredibly interesting time too with the centenary of, um, of uh, Anzac, um, uh, all of those things, the bringing of the giants here, yep. um, the, the getting back of the land for the RSL to rebuild its headquarters, uh, the building of the National Anzac Centre down in Albany, all of those things yep. were were great to be involved in, great to be a part of. Uh, But once again, four years, time to go. That was enough. Yeah, it was enough, mate, because it was a full-time job, basically, given the work that had to happen. And I'm a great view, I'm a great believer of the view that if you're elected to to lead an organisation like the RSL, will you lead from the front? And um, uh, and that's the way I like to do it. Uh, I'm sure that upset some of the... of the... um, the the people around the place, but that was the nature of me, and, and yeah. that's the way it was. And I'm pleased with the work I did, yeah. and pleased to get out, and I'm pleased to see. I think that the RSL 
uh, was modernised over that time. Yeah. Well, look, we saw uh, great growth in um, in the RSLs. Uh, membership numbers. We saw incredible turnouts uh, at the the dawn services all around uh, WA, but particularly um, you know the beautiful service in uh, Kings Park. You mentioned the Giants. Um, you also played a major role in the uh, the new uh, Anzac Centre uh, down in Albany. So they were four very productive years. Is there something in in that mix that uh, that you're most proud of? Look, mate. I think the thing for me was to. Uh, to give the RSL, I think, a, a higher profile in the community. It, it was incredibly important that the RSL um, regain its mojo, that it become the organisation that younger veterans, men and women, wanted to turn to, that the organisation itself had to change, modernise, um, to turn to the younger people. Never, ever turn your back on the older men and women, the, the old diggers who, who served through Second World War, Korea, um, these sorts of places, but stick the hand of friendship out fairly and squarely to the mm. to the young men and women who'd served in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Timor, uh, Rwanda, and these places who needed our support when they came home, and it was important that they knew that they had it. That's what I like to think mm. uh, we helped during that time. The RSL achieve. Well, Graham, you've you've had an extraordinary life. And uh, so many achievements. I, I feel like we've only just uh, touched the surface there, but uh, and I'm sure uh, many more to come. We really, really do appreciate you coming in and, and sharing uh, some of your inspiring stories with us. Thanks, Tim, and thanks for your interest, and great to be here. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one, Graham Edwards, has been brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Please join us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. Sorry about the noise. My neighbour's sanding his deck. My motto? Don't work on your deck. Play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck. Low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.